Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult, and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Andy Kuldrick. Andy is the chair of the Birmingham Children's Trust, having just stepped back from being the chief exec of that organisation right from the outset. Before that, he was the chief executive at Wokingham Council, where he was also the director of children's services before stepping up to become chief executive. And at Wokingham, he managed to achieve one of the quickest turnarounds of children's services from inadequacy in just a year, which is really one of the quickest that I've heard of. We talked about the ingredients of quick improvement, and it won't surprise you that this includes having the right team around you, but also being able to do many things in parallel. We then talked about Andy's transition to chief executive and how that required a different mindset and in many ways a different set of skills. Birmingham Children's Trust isn't the only one in the country, so Andy explains exactly what this model is and what some of the benefits of it are, particularly in creating some insulation from being in a potentially difficult environment, which if any of you have been reading the press about Birmingham will know that that is a difficult environment right now. We also talk about the value of perseverance, and when you're on a difficult improvement journey, the way Andy describes it is the importance of keeping showing up and showing staff that you're going to keep showing up and you're going to keep talking about the same thing. I thought that was really interesting and inspiring and you'll hear a lot about that. And then we finally touched on the role of council children's services in the wider system, particularly the health system and how councils have a huge role to play in promoting children's health and well-being. So I hope you enjoy it. Andy, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. So a lot of people that work with me and that we work with will know who you are, but for those who don't, could you just say a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. Hi, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. So I'm Andy Caldrick. I am chair now of Birmingham Children's Trust, having recently uh, assumed the role of chair, having been its chief executive from inception in 2000, late 2017 uh, through to uh, just before Christmas. Very good. and. Before that, you or you came from Wokingham, which is a district council. Can you just say a little bit about your earlier career in public services and kind of where you started and, and, and how you ended up in Wokingham? And then we can talk about that for a bit. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I uh, my first step into public service was working in residential care, from, uh, in which environment I learned a huge amount about. Uh, I guess myself and um, the lives of some of our most vulnerable young people and adults. I work with adults with learning difficulties and then in uh, children's homes. Yeah. Uh, I went off and got qualified and then worked as a social worker and then took on various 
different sort of managerial leadership roles in different parts of the uh, southeast mainly and came to Wokingham as the director of children's services at a time when they'd been judged uh, inadequate uh, by Ofsted. Uh, led improvement work there and after a couple of years following a well, after about a year, we had a, a re-inspection where we were no longer judged inadequate. And, and not long after that, I was asked by the members to um, take on the role of chief executive, initially on an interim basis and subsequently permanently, which I did for about four years. Okay, great. Um, I'm just going to take a few steps back to get a little bit more from you in some of this. So one, one of the things I like to ask people is what drew them to public services. So it's not... It's not a career path that everybody feels drawn towards. What drew you towards it? So uh, in full confessional mode, I left school uh, prior to being invited uh, to leave school uh, and left without uh, completing my A-level study. Uh, the head of sixth form told me that he thought all I was fit to do was go and work in Barclays Bank. So I went and worked in Barclays Bank, did that right. for a few years uh Realised quite quickly that banking probably wasn't for me. I come from a family steeped in public service. My father was a GP, my mother uh, a health visitor, and then subsequently she worked in palliative care services. And through them, uh, I met somebody who was in social care who introduced me to my first job in yeah. a, uh, in residential care. And that, that was my routine, and I've uh, never thought twice about yeah. the value and importance of public services. So, because of all the things you could do in children's services, residential care is not is not an easy place to start or to work. No, uh, I it's the the Sunday night feeling still resonates with me, thirty right. plus years on. Sunday nights were always very fraught in the home I worked in, largely because these young people really didn't enjoy school and didn't get much out of education and therefore Sunday night meant the, the looming new week of being yeah. chased out of bed. So it was always a very tense time and and it, it that the sensation, the Sunday night sensation has lived with me ever since. Uh, I saw things that uh, shocked me, uh, not, le- not just in terms of young people and their... Um, you know their experiences and their their behaviours, but also in terms of the way uh, then much as now I fear uh, fails to wrap around our most vulnerable young people uh, to give them the very best that they can. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So I want to fast forward now to when you were the director of children's services at. Wokingham and you you described this really quickly but it was really quite an astonishing achievement there I think so the services were inadequate when you arrived and you led a team which made significant improvement out of inadequacy in I think just a year which is certainly one of the quickest I've ever heard of what were the building blocks of that journey because that is I think I'm right in saying that 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 is one of the quickest Uh, certainly at the time the department officials we were working with told us that, that they thought it was surprisingly rapid. I think I had the advantage of recruiting a new leadership team. Uh, and we're as good as the people that we surround ourselves with, I think, in all walks of life. Yeah. Uh, and two of them went on to become directors. Uh, one went on to lead school improvement in a, a big London system. So I, we recruited well and we were really clear, as I suppose I've tried to be, throughout my career in children's services about trying to understand what the conditions are that enable people to do good work and then trying to create those conditions. We were starting from a really low base because most of the social workers had left. So we were uh, trying to to build a workforce, build a a culture uh, and a practice model that felt different than the last one. Uh, and create conditions through good quality leadership, management, supervision and support services that enabled them to do good work. Because it's it's that combination. And, of course, this this was immediately prior to uh, austerity cutting in. So it was a time when we had the benefits of extended schools and 
children's centres providing lots of support to families in ways that, that are much more uh, scarce uh, today. So it's really about how do we organise all of those things well to make the biggest impact for those who need those services most? And how do we support social workers to do their work well? Yeah. And just on on the speed of it, so, I mean, some improvement journeys, it takes a year just to figure out what needs fixing. But were you quite, you were quite obviously quite quickly able to identify the big problems and get working on them immediately? I think what, what we identified was that you couldn't, it was impossible to be linear in the approach to improvement. You couldn't, we were not able to say, well, fix this and then we'll do this. And then yeah. we'll do this. The analogy we used all the time was uh, about perfecting our plate spinning skills. Yeah. Because we were having to work on any number of fronts to improve things. We were building relationships with partners, with head teachers who'd become quite disenfranchised, uh, with a workforce that uh, had become deeply mistrustful around yeah. social work leadership, with politicians who'd been, you know, shocked to the core by uh being told that their services were inadequate uh, and it, it felt like we were we had to be attending to everything all the time yeah that was an incredible journey and a real success and off the back of that you were asked to move up to chief exec i think you said an interim and then and then as a permanent role what, yes. what was the transition like and you know and in what ways was the role different what sort of mindset change did you have to enact? Uh, it was a, quite a rapid transition because the previous chief executive disappeared quite quickly. Uh, I suppose the, the kind of analogy I've developed is that the transition was akin to a being feeling like you're the first violinist in an orchestra. So you have yeah. an, an instrument that you're, you've become quite skilled and proficient at playing and then you're asked to put the instrument down uh, stand in front of the orchestra, somebody gives you a little white stick and you wave it's it around. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You wave it around in the belief or the hope that as a consequence of the way you're waving the baton, something's happening in a kind of synchronized, coordinated way yeah. without ever being really sure, uh, that it was. So it, yeah. it felt, uh, hugely, uh, scary. You know, you, you, I'd learned quite a lot about children's social care, uh, a fair bit about education and other children's services. I knew far less about adult social care and housing numbers, uh, local plans, yeah. uh, the planning process, economic waste collection schemes. Yeah. Uh, we, I inherited a £110 million town centre regeneration programme. And so very quickly, you you learn how much you don't know about almost everything as yeah. a chief executive. That's my overwhelming memory of those times. But exciting, though, right? I mean, just having to learn all those new things. I definitely did most of my learning in my life at the wrong time. I'm much more interested in learning now that I'm a bit older. And just the new challenges I really enjoy. Whereas actually, when I was a lot younger, I just was it was wasted on me, I think. I, no, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, and my my learn, early learning was very similarly uh, less than it might have been. Uh, <laughs> and and you're right when you're working in that kind of environment, you 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 have to learn quickly, and you have to learn to lead in different ways. Um, to recognise that you're working with people who are much more specialist and expert than you are, but who still need challenging uh, and a kind of leadership curiosity that pushes them out of their comfort zones uh, and encourages different ways of thinking. And I guess you make links. You know, I was always struck by how similar for a plan, uh, how similar the experience is of a planning officer in a planning yeah. committee with the experience that you get as a social worker in a care court in terms of the level of cross-examination and, you know, sometimes naked hostility from a room full of people who really don't want that housing development anywhere near them. Thank you very much. You know, so there's a kind of emotional resonance around, yeah. you know, work, working in those kinds of adverse environments. 
but essentially learning by asking questions. What about the transition from being a director of children's services on an improvement journey where you would have had to have been across a lot of the detail all of the time to that chief exec role where you just haven't got the capacity to be across the detail. And in fact, I'm sure not everything was in the state of that children's services was in when you took on the DCS role. How do, how do you make that transition to being more of a delegator, more of the, the, I think they refer to it as the helicopter thing where you're kind of observing and then you can zoom down to, yes. to tackle specific problems? I think you, I think my experience was of needing to really get to understand the service leaders who were, I was working with. Uh, and through that to build up a sense of um, the areas where I needed to be close to the detail and the areas where I could be comfortable the detail was held. Um, and therefore the role becomes different in different different bits of the business. So I'd learned a huge amount about planning because there were huge development going on across Woking and Borough, which, none of which was very popular. So it was yeah. politically highly charged, uh, and um, it felt like I needed to look, to know much more than I knew. Yeah. Whereas uh, I, I was more distant from adult social care, partly because I knew a little bit about some of the, the, the basic constructs, and partly because there was a, a director who, you know, I was confident, had a grasp of the detail that he needed to have a grasp of. So I suppose it's that combination of understanding where your risks are and understanding how your people are. That's really interesting. So let's move to the Birmingham Children's Trust then. So you went on from Wokingham to become the inaugural chief exec of the Birmingham Children's Trust. For those listening who may not know, could you quickly explain what a trust is, how it came about and what it's there to do? Yes, of course. So Birmingham City Council, the largest council in Western Europe and therefore running, you know, one of the largest social care systems in the country for children, had struggled for many years to deliver a good enough service. It was uh, perpetually rated inadequate by Ofsted for uh, 15 years, I think, Um was a particular um, bet noir for the then chief inspector, Dr. Michael Wilshaw, who used to feature Birmingham in a, a, a critical way at every opportunity he had. Um, and I, the council reached the point, supported, if you like, by the Department for Education, where they had to do something different. I think the real catalyst was a... Uh, a documentary made by Channel 4 where they sent a social worker in mic'd up and with a hidden camera uh, to work in Birmingham in order to kind of generate some kind of new expose about how terrible everything was. That spurred the council to say we need to deliver these things in a different way. And the Children's Trust was the model that was just beginning to emerge. There had been a couple previously. I think Doncaster was the first and slow. And then slow, yeah. The difference between Birmingham's model and theirs is they were wholly owned by their directors, whereas Birmingham Children's Trust has always been what's known as a community interest company, wholly owned by the city council. So the council owns us and the council commissions us. Yes. But we are, on a day-to-day basis, operationally independent. So, for example, as chief executive... I don't report to the chief executive of the council. I meet with her regularly, as I do with the DCS. But my line of accountability was always to my chair and my board. Um, So it gave us the uh, freedom and independence to change the way that we did things uh, in a more nimble and agile way because we were not subject to all of the same bureaucratic accountability systems that exist uh, in councils. So I've always characterised our relationship as threefold with the council. They own us and we produce a business plan every year that they sign off as our owners. They commission us, so we meet every month and we report on our performance, service performance, financial performance, highlight the areas where there's risk, uh, uh, etc., 
And then third, and perhaps most important, we are obviously strategic partners because we need good schools, good SEMD services, strong yeah. uh, other services for families to, to help us in the work that we do with the most vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, the, this role as chief executive of the trust seems to have combined. It's a, it's a nice combination for your skills experience as a DCS and then leading an entire organization as chief exec. But just your the statement that you made earlier about them being inadequate for almost 15 years running, you know, so your arrival won't have been the first time that the children's services staff have been promised and you start, I'm sure. How did you get started and what, what were your priorities when you arrived? I arrived in August 2017 with a view to delivering a children's trust as an entirely separate new organisation um, by April 2018. Yeah. And I have a very strong memory of um, a point on that journey when the, the lawyers who were supporting us were saying, you don't really think you can pull this off, do you? And I said, yes, well, we've got no choice. We will pull it off. Um. And I spent a huge amount of time in big meetings with hundreds of staff as part of the formal TP transfer arrangements, because these yeah. people were all moving out of the city council into yeah. the, this new thing called the Children's Trust. Uh, and here's this new, bright, shiny leader telling us why, why and how it's all going to be different and it's all going to yeah. be better. Um, and I had a strong sense of, you know, eyes rolling before me like um, fruit machines because they've been promised different things so many times. And I genuinely believe that one of the things that one one of the most important things that helped us to achieve what we have is just still being around. You know, to to keep coming back and look, look, we're still here. We're still doing it and we're getting better as a result. So let's carry on. And yes, I'll be back next week. Yeah. and eventually, you know, you feel people, you feel the organisation and your teammates in the organisation begin to buy in to yeah. the idea that this time they mean it, this time they're serious. And I can be- it begins to feel different. I think yeah. it began to feel different for the staff. And we began to feel that reflected in our kind of connection to them. Yeah. So I think that and a real clear-eyed vision for what we needed to be and what we needed to do, which was, again, uh, the leadership task was to create the conditions that made it possible for good social work to flourish. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Birmingham was not full of bad social workers. It was full of social workers trying to do really hard work in really difficult environments without getting the help they needed. Yeah. So just in terms of what the trust achieves, I mean, it essentially takes the children's services out of a council environment that might be challenging and gives it space to breathe, brings in new leadership, governance. And that that space and lack of interference from other parts of the council on a daily basis is probably quite important. Uh, definitely. And we're, we're also completely self-contained. So we have our yeah. own finance service, our own HR service. We've been able yeah. to radically change our kind of policies and procedures yeah. to, to shorten, you know, one of the obvious areas is, you know, recruiting social workers is really bloody difficult. Yeah. You want to make that process work as slickly and smoothly as you can. So you you strip out the bureaucracy that's unnecessary and you shorten dramatically the gap between an interview, an offer letter, and uh, a, a, yeah. a work placement starting. And we've done that, and that's improved our recruitment and our retention. Oh, so that, that's an amazing little detail there, actually, because, yeah, in all walks of life, the speed at which you can move when you're recruiting people, because very few people just interview in one place. So if you if you have to go through a load of hoops, jump through a load of hoops in order to make an offer to someone, I bet half the time, if you're doing it from a council side, the person's already accepted an offer somewhere else, maybe. So that speed is really interesting point. So Birmingham Council itself, I think anybody who who follows public service news at all will know that it's experienced a lot of disruption 
and change, uh, particularly over the time that you were at the Trust. How have you dealt with the disruption in your parent organisation and your commissioner and your partner? So um, it's a fair assessment. In the, the six years I've been in Birmingham, I've worked with seven chief executives in the council, uh, six directors of children's services, six or five or six section 151 officers. Um, and, and that's part of the malaise of Birmingham City Council. It's really hard to do improvement um, if nobody sticks around to make it so. Yeah. And, you know, we're beginning, you're beginning to see some of that stickiness beginning to increase and that, that's got to be good. I, I think, what did we do? I think we knew that we had a really clear mission and that we didn't want to improve services because our owners were asking us to and we didn't want to do it because we were commissioned to do it. We wanted to do it because we felt a, a strong sense of, I don't want this to sound too kind of uh, icky, but it, there's something about moral purpose in, in what we do. Uh, and our moral purpose was about recognising that lots of young people and families had in different ways been let down yeah. by social care services in the city. And we had a, a, a responsibility to them to not keep repeating those mistakes and, and yeah. to make things better and to give families experiencing our interventions uh, a more positive experience, a sense that our job was to help them to succeed rather than punish them for not well, succeeding. As a as a community interest company, your your purpose it will be written in your in your articles of association, so it's there for everybody to see what the organisation is about, and anybody can can look that up and and see Absolutely. what your your purpose is. So yeah, yeah definitely. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about risk appetite because to to go on an improvement journey there must be some risk taken and I just want to get your views on how important it is to get the balance of risk appetite and safety right when seeking a dramatic improvement of a service and 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 also once you've answered that I'd like to get your view on whether you think that could have been done within the formal public sector. So I guess in my in our world, risk exists on um, different levels. You know, I guess most of my preoccupations about risk have been at the kind of more the micro level. Yeah. You know, are we making the right decisions for children today and tomorrow and uh, uh, last week? Are we properly weighing the risks uh, around uh, a child's circumstances? One of the things that's always troubled me is that we're we're much better at understanding the risks consequent to, to us not intervening in a yeah. family's life in a more dr- dramatic way than we are the risks associated with the consequence of our intervention. And we know that, you know, lots of children, despite our best efforts, experience the care system as not the very best place in which to grow up. So yeah. I've really been preoccupied with un- properly understanding how we support social workers to get at that element of risk appetite right. As a kind of macro strategic level for the organisation, I think we've we've been absolutely focused on the question, is it the right thing for us to do? Yeah. Uh, and if the board agree has agreed with us that it's the right thing to do, then we'll do it and we'll do it quickly. And if it hasn't worked, then we'll undo it and we'll try something else. Yeah. Now, that part of the flexibility that we have means that we've been able to, if you like, uh, create fertile soil and encourage a thousand flowers to grow on the basis that some grow really well and we nurture them and grow them and do more of it and others wither quite quickly. So we stop that and focus on yeah. the things that are being successful. It's that that I think is much harder to replicate Yeah, I, in the I, formal I was... constraints of a local authority. I, I was listening to a podcast quite recently and the, there was a lady on it. She was talking about the right sort of failure, the right, so intelligent failure and intelligent, I guess you could map intelligent risk taking onto that where it's well intentioned, it's thought through, it's not a mistake. It's something that has been tried in the knowledge that it might not work. 
and that being okay. And I think in my experience within within public services, that is often not tolerated. Yeah, I'd I'd absolutely agree with that. Now, obviously, what you have to make sure is that the failure, if something doesn't work, doesn't have an impact on citizens. Yeah. If, If it's about us, we've tried something and it's not made a difference, then we'll stop and try something else. And we've developed a program of services out of nothing because they they, they simply didn't exist, that are entirely focused now through different forms of intervention on keeping families together. Because we think that's what we're charged morally, ethically and legally to do. Yeah. And some of those have worked really well. Some things we've tried, they've worked less well, so we do less of them and more of the things that work. Um. But you have to be willing to try things in the knowledge that not everything will succeed. Yeah. And do, do you have, um, I, mean, I don't know, any sort of formal processes around how you assess whether things have worked or not? Or is it more just a, a cultural norm that, that you kind of have a constant learning environment? How do you manage it? I, I think all of those. Right. I, think, I think you can. We do try to create uh, the, me- the means to, to manage information so that we yeah. get a sense if you like quantitatively of the difference that we're making or not but much more much more important i think has been to create a culture where people are open about what's working and what isn't where people feel yeah. able to say that's the key thing this isn't, isn't making yeah. a difference or this isn't working yeah uh, uh, and it and i suppose I, i'm most proud of the culture that we've built as an organization where people feel much more able to put their head up and say i'm not sure i agree with that or can i just question that Uh, that i think that's what keeps us robust strong and safe yeah no i think that that's a that's a really good answer and i'm really pleased to hear that um so i want to move on now so you've just transitioned to chair of the trust um with a new chief exec Coming in, how are you handling this? Because I, I guess it can be a great gift to a new chief exec to have access to all that knowledge of the journey so far, etc. But on the flip side, it could probably be a bit of a challenge to have the old boss still there. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I'm very, uh, my old boss, when Andrew Christie was the chair, uh, we had exactly that conversation on any number of occasions. I think it's really important that I give James the space to become the chief executive. And, and this is James. James sorry, Thomas. Saying, right. James and Thomas, James is yeah. coming in as the new chief executive. Yeah. Yeah. He started just before Christmas and he's made a great start and I'm really pleased. Um, but I want him to know that he's got the space to build on the foundation that we created on the basis yeah. that we knew we were ne- nowhere near done. So there's plenty of scope. And, you know, Ofsted said we were good. That doesn't mean we're done. It means there's there's a, a firmer foundation on which to build more solid practice, uh, more solid leadership and practice. So part of my task is to keep out of his hair, but to be as available as Andrew always was to me, uh, both to kind of you know, make sure that any experience, knowledge, information about people and relationships I can transfer to him and that I can, I hope, be supportive of him in doing things the way he wants to do them. Yeah. I felt ready to stop. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, that's a really important thing, isn't it? That you felt, right, actually, this is the right time for me to to take a step back and let somebody else take it on. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, a number of, you won't be surprised to learn, a number of people have asked that question. How are you going to stop being the chief executive? Yeah. And, and my answer tends to be, well, if I'd wanted to carry on, I could have. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was time, it was the right time for somebody else for some, to bring some new ideas, some new experiences and, and to push on. And I'm really happy to be in the new role, able to support that. Yeah, and I, and I know that you're still going to be active in the sector and doing work and using that knowledge that you've got, which is great. Really looking forward to seeing what you go on to do next. Um, I want to zoom out a bit and talk about the wider health and care system. So integrated care boards are the, the kind of 
governing body of the new integrated integrated care systems and this is within the NHS system, the new reorganization, and they have produced plans over the summer with pretty bold ambitions for children, including things like every child having the best start in life, tackling long-term conditions such as obesity. What role does and should council run or commission children's services have in the achievement of this? And what involvement have you had so far in Birmingham's establishment of the ICB plan? So, I think the ICB in Birmingham have worked hard to be inclusive with the council. So one of the things that I, I used to do that James has now picked up is to be part of uh, a, a meeting every Friday morning of all of the ICB uh, chief executives, you know, right. provider and commissioner in old language. So that's uh, weekly that that's. That's Every week meeting. they'll come right, together okay. uh, and uh, it's a kind of engaging, participative environment. Sometimes it's a very health-focused agenda, you know, if it's about winter pressures, etc. But sometimes, yeah. you know, it was, it's been a good place to have a discussion about, you know, uh, with the Director of Adult Services who also attends about, you know, the potential implications of the uh, 114 to talk about, you know, inspection outcomes and... Um, such like. So I think as a kind of relational level, there's been a real investment in uh, collaboration. I think we we lose ground every time there's a NHS reorganisation because of the time that's lost in doing the reorganising. And uh, I think that children's services are a mix of things that some of which can be done unilaterally some of the things that are much more inherently need to be collaborative and more integrated. Yeah. But if you've got, I think if the relationships exist, then it becomes possible to pick your way through that and collaborate where you need to collaborate. The area that, that has always worried me the most is, is in the disconnects that I think exists quite badly between local authority children services and the NHS around child and adolescent mental health and emotional well-being. I was going to ask you about mental health, actually. It worries me a, a lot. It feels like it feels like an area of policy and service delivery that has barely changed through the course of my career. So some of the arguments that happen are happening probably as we speak in Birmingham about children who may or may not have acute mental health issues seem to me to be the same as arguments I was having with local psychiatrists 30 years ago. And yeah. I think it's, it's, it brings shame on all of us. And yeah. there must be a better way collaboratively, to, you know, almost in a way that stops fretting so much about tears, where at the moment tears equate to resources and intervention. And yeah. more into conversations about how do we collectively wrap ourselves around this kid because they're incredibly vulnerable. Yeah, uh, well, I, it, it's a very acute area of concern for for me as well. I mean, we've got a member of our team at Mutual Ventures has joined us from the, the Met Police, where he was a sergeant, and he obviously the Met changed their their policies towards mental health callouts and things, and he was describing some of the some of his experiences and. There just is a real lack of join up between the different services. And I know some people are trying to do something about it. But when I read in the integrated care board plans about the ambitions around children's mental health, they all mention it. And I just couldn't help thinking, how on earth are you going to do this? And what action, what are you going to do differently? Because you're, you're right. It's been, it's been decades where the same conversations have been happening. And I, I don't see a huge amount of creative thinking going on about how you actually achieve it just feels like it and and we'll look back in three years time and for most places it'll be one of the ambitions that they didn't quite get to yeah that that that, that's my fear too and i think too many children are ending up uh in the wrong provision receiving services that are doing their very best but are probably the wrong services yeah um because we're still all obsessed with uh, is it yours or is it mine is it tier x or is it tier y and does that what does that mean you get and you don't get 
And we've got to do better. There's also, there's also sometimes a rush to, to formalize things as well. I think you talked about, you know, tears, not necessarily meaning formal intervention. My, I I speak with a little bit of knowledge because my, my mum is, is a bereavement counsellor and she laments sometimes that somebody going through bereavement is sometimes classed as having a mental health issue when actually they're going through bereavement. And that's what happens when a normal person does. I think that's one of the fundamental problems, isn't it? Is that, that we, we all begin to obsess about diagnosis. Yeah. Because treatment is dependent on diagnosis. If we could think more about need, then we'd begin to recognise that a child might need some help from a psychiatrist, some help from a uh, a counsellor, and the family some help from the social worker. Mm. And so we should work, learn how to come together. The, yeah. the analogy I used in mental health is, you know, we, we've all done the washing up after we've roasted our potatoes this Christmas, uh, and you put the boiling water in the pan, and then when you drop the, fa- the fairy liquid in, you watch the fat ping to the outside of the pan. That's how it. Fit, that's how this area of our business still feels. That people yeah. step away when what these kids and their families need is for us all to step in. Yeah. That's the change we've got to make. One of the things we're really interested in at Mutual Ventures is thinking about how those children's ambitions are, are achieved, and and I think mental health is a really good area to see you know, if we can get it working there somewhere as a, as an example as a case study then anything's possible i think so really appreciate your you sharing your thoughts on that i want to talk about something really completely different now i'm also really interested in artificial intelligence and i think children's services is a great example of a, a critical and accountable service on which to examine the role artificial intelligence could play now just for for listeners when i talk about artificial intelligence in in the context of this conversation i'm talking about making sense of all of the data that the public services sometimes different public services have on a child or a family and you know is there any way of using that information to perhaps predict when a family is approaching crisis and maybe give them a bit of help earlier um you know i'm not necessarily talking about just automation and chatbots and things which you know have no real learning element to it so i just wanted to get your your thoughts on it so um over the years the recent years i've had a number of organizations have approached me to um tell me the delights of an artificial intelligence system where you input some information about, you know, from different sources about a family's uh, income yeah. issues and housing issues and uh, education attainment issues, and it'll tell you who you need to intervene with. Uh, and I've always had a kind of slightly irrational, maybe not an irrational, uh, maybe an entirely rational uh, allergic reaction to that. I suppose what I really think is that we have all of that intelligence at our collective disposal now. We just have not ever utilised it as well as yeah. we could. Uh, so I am interested in in how artificial intelligence can help around things like the relationship between debt and risk of homelessness. Because, yeah. you know, here in Birmingham and in other places, homelessness for families has a significant impact on children's lives. Yeah. And we intervene in Birmingham. We offer every family who's made, who find themselves in temporary accommodation, we offer them, we reach out to them or offer them support if they want some. Yeah. But it's too late then, isn't it? Because they've lost their home. So I think there must be more that we could do to understand how by pulling data together and using uh, algorithms and artificial intelligence, we could build up much more accurate pictures uh, yeah. that help inform early intervention. Because one I, of the things I, we never really know about early intervention is whether we actually stopped something bad happening or not, yeah. because we didn't know if, because it has never happened. But in, there are, in, there's in, enough intelligence in the system for us to work differently and increase our hit rate, which is so important when resources are disappearing. 
yeah. we have to be intervening in the right places at the right times. I completely agree. And I think we're a ways off, actually, because of just the lack of data maturity and complete data sets. And, you know, for artificial intelligence to be of any use, it needs to have quite a lot of data that sees something through the whole journey to know what the outcome was as well in order to know what the indicators were. Um, But even just going back to what you were saying about the the, the information that you've got, I mean, for things like approaching homelessness, you know, you've got, I know council teams who are, who are trialing, looking at things like being in council tax arrears and actually that being an indicator that something's not right here. And then as opposed to sending the bailiffs around, you send a person around to have a chat with them and see, see what's going on, you know, and so it, it may not even require tremendously sophisticated systems if there are a couple of indicators that, that we don't currently look at or we don't respond to it in a way that might actually help the person rather than just punishing them. So, no, I appreciate sharing your thoughts on that. It's a particular area of interest of mine. And and I I, I just think this is coming. Artificial intelligence is coming and staff are going to start using without without any policies in place or anything. They'll start using things themselves. And that could be potentially quite dangerous. I, I think that's absolutely true. It's only a matter of time before... Uh, you know, somebody says, ask chat GPT to produce their court report for them. I, I would now, be you know, really surprised. I don't want to say mechanism. any hairs running, but I'd be really surprised if that hasn't happened somewhere yeah. already. Yeah. And, you know, it, if the information, the relevant information has been made available, then it, it may well write a better report than I could as a social worker. But what it can't do is it can't yet provide the court with a professional judgment about yeah. risk. Yeah. That's that's the bit that we can't give away. Yeah, I okay. think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um Andy, so as a last question, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in or in or around public services who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? Uh well, uh, Thank you for suggesting I have. I think we just well, can't you, you do have, what we do. You have. We? People are very modest sometimes, but I will I will definitely make the statement that you have made a tremendous impact so far, much more to come, in public services. But one of the things that I'm really pleased about with this podcast is that younger people building their careers in public services listen and you know, this is an opportunity to, to give them a bit of advice. Uh, stick with it. Yep. Recognise that, that meaningful change takes time, but is always possible. Do you mean don't be tempted away from a potentially promising career in social work to go and do something easier in the private sector because it just feels like it's... No, I'm, I think I mean, if you're taking on a challenging role, then recognise that the challenge isn't going to be fixed overnight. Yeah. And you're going to get buffeted and beaten up and blown off course. And the people you lead, for them, it's really important that you keep popping up again and saying, we're still here, we're still doing this. And that's, you know, that means a commitment of three years, five years. You know, I'm, I'm by Birmingham standards, I'm a, an old lag now. And that's only six, only six yeah. years. I suppose the other things are about do what you say you're going to do. So lead yeah. with a real sense of accountability uh, uh, and integrity, but but recognise, I suppose, that the the day of the hero leaders probably long gone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I want the people who work in Birmingham Children's Trust to be able to say in six months' time, "Oh yeah, Andy, I remember him. He used to work here, didn't he?" Yeah. Because yeah. it's it's their organisation and it's their improvement. Yeah. You've mentioned the concept of keeping popping up a couple of times. I, I really like it because when you're trying to do something difficult and people want to stop you or don't want to engage with it, you know, if you if you try a couple of times and then just disappear, they'll probably think, oh, well, there we are. Just another person come come to try and do something different and it's disappeared. But it sounds like your formula is actually, you know, I'm not going away. So I can sit here outside your your door waiting for you to open it. As long as as long as you want. Yeah, yeah. Much as I did many times on, yeah. the, on the doorstep of families that were reluctant to open the door. Yeah, 
Brilliant. Andy, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to talk to you. I really enjoyed that conversation with Andy. He's a really thoughtful public service leader. And there were a couple of things in particular that I found really useful. That idea of when you're on an improvement journey, you need to keep multiple plates spinning. You need to do lots of things at the same time. It's not a linear process necessarily where you do one thing, then another thing. If you want to make that quick impact and achieve that improvement, you need to keep many things going at once and the importance of having a good team around you who you can trust to lead on some of those elements is obviously really important and Andy emphasised that. The second bit, and this is really my favourite bit of the whole thing, is the philosophy of keeping showing up. People in public services are quite often fatigued by change and different leaders turning up and offering different solutions, that type of thing. Andy's philosophy was quite simple. Birmingham had been on a number of attempted improvement journeys, but his philosophy was that even though there was some resistance and some uh, scepticism as to whether his plan would work, his idea was that him and his team would keep showing up, keep saying the same things, keep pushing the same agenda. And in the end, that's what won through and that's what achieved the amazing improvement that they have seen there. So this is a philosophy that you often hear from really successful sports people as well, where they just they keep going, they don't give up, they keep at it, they keep on the same thing and eventually it will win through. And the final thing I want to mention is children's mental health. So we had a good discussion about that. There's no doubt there's a growing crisis within public services around mental health and children's mental health in particular. CAM services are overwhelmed. Um, when I'm talking to colleagues and friends about this, I often say that I'm really glad I was young when I was young because the pressure of social media and everything that goes around that and just the pressure of modern life for children is, is a lot. But are we managing it correctly? Now, I am not a qualified expert in children's mental health, but based on the conversation I've had with Andy and others, are we reaching for diagnosis and treatment rather than more holistic support? I think that is a, is a question which goes to the heart of prevention and trying to support people not to need more serious and expensive interventions. So that, I think, is an outstanding question, which if we are going to tackle the crisis in children's mental health, we're really going to have to get our heads around. So that's everything for this episode. Thank you, as always, for your time. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts uh, so you never miss a future episode.